The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast, and I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. It's Monday, October 3rd. Perhaps you've heard of Molly White. So one thing that I really care about is taking information that's not always the easiest to find and trying to make it more accessible to people. The software engineer and crypto skeptic has been profiled in The Washington Post, in Fast Company and the Boston Globe. She has more than 80,000 followers on her personal Twitter account and more than 100,000 on an account called Web3 is going just great, which is based on her website of the same name. These are, as you might guess, a chronicle of all the ways that Web3 is not going so great. Molly, delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you? I'm a software engineer and a researcher, um, and I've been focusing pretty heavily on researching crypto, blockchains, Web3, everything related to that. And I run the website Web3 is going just great, where I keep track of some of the hacks and scams and other general disasters that have been happening in the crypto space. In other words, Web3 is not going just great. It's a bit of a sarcastic title, yes. (laughs) What got you interested in becoming kind of the chronicler of our time, as it were, of these various, as you put it, hacks, scams and disasters? I'm a bit of a chronicler by nature, I think. I have been a Wikipedia editor for you know over a decade, and that's just something that I've always been really passionate about. But around the middle of last year or so, it felt like crypto was really reaching a bit of a fever pitch when it came to the marketing and the hype and the social media coverage. It was, you know, it was pretty extreme around everyone should be investing in crypto. You should be putting your retirement money into it. You could become a millionaire overnight, all these types of things. And I felt like we weren't seeing as much of the other side of things where projects were getting hacked for sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. People were losing their money because of individual hacks or because of, you know, not securing their crypto well enough. And there was sort of a a very serious, you know, predatory side of things that I felt like wasn't getting enough coverage. And so, you know, felt like I would do my part to try to change that. Well, you've certainly redirected a lot of the conversation in ways that are arguably more constructive from a consumer protection standpoint than had necessarily been the case before. But one of the things I'm sort of most interested in 
and we have a very nerdy audience, so like feel free to go deep into this. When you call yourself a natural kind of chronicler and archivist, as it were, how do you even keep track? Because I say this as an editor whose literal job is staying on top of, you know, the various things in crypto and every morning and I'm, I wake up and I'm surprised by something. Like, what's your curatorial process? How do you decide what things kind of rise to the occasion of being worthy of inclusion for you? It's a pretty uh, holistic process, I would say. <laughs> you know, it's kind of just based on vibes. Typically, I'll include things if there was, you know, a major monetary amount. So anything over like $100,000, I'll typically include. But I also will try to include things that show that, you know, sometimes the things that are going really wrong are affecting individual people really badly. And so even if the monetary amount might not be enormous compared to what an institutional loss might be, it still feels useful to describe that, you know, individual people are sometimes losing their entire savings in crypto, you know, even if for an institution, it might not be that much money. As far as how I find things, that's pretty all over the place. There's a <laughs> lot of, uh, I'm an RSS, you know, lover, so I have a pretty active RSS feed that I follow. Uh, and then a lot of stuff comes through on Twitter. But, you know, one thing that's been great is as the site has gotten a little bit bigger and there's become more of a devoted readership, a lot of people will just send me things. And, mm -hmm. and that's really helpful because you can never find everything yourself. That's true. Shout out to RSS. I want to pick up on one thing that you said, which I think distinguishes your approach from that of others who are cropping up in this space and which is the allowance for the individual and the highlighting of individual harms and not just institutional ones. I think one of your more recent and frankly harrowing threads was around the individual letters sent by creditors who had lost everything in a big kind of crypto bankruptcy sort of fallout. Can you talk a little bit more about what motivated you to do that and if there's anything that you learned you know, as you undertook that project? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I really care about is taking information that's not always the easiest to find and trying to make it more accessible to people. And that's really what I was trying to do when I highlighted some of the excerpts from the letters that were being sent to the judge in the Celsius and the Voyager bankruptcy cases. Because, you know, they're online, but they're in a very obscure place. They're in these PDF files. You know, they're very long and it's a lot of reading to do. So I was just trying to sort of distill down some of the examples of how people were really materially harmed in those particular cases. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it wasn't individuals losing millions of dollars, but mm -hmm. it was people losing substantial amounts of their savings. You know, some of them were retirees, some of them had been working for decades and just scraping together what extra money they could. You know, some of it was earmarked for their children's education. And it was really, I think, illustrative of how sometimes people who are getting into crypto are not necessarily what people picture a lot of the time. You know, people will often picture young usually male, uh, mm -hmm. people who have a little bit of extra money that they want to just wildly gamble away on crypto. And they're taking these moonshots and, mm -hmm. you know, they might lose it all. They might become rich. But, you know, ultimately, it's not a big deal, whatever happens to that money. But in this case, that was a marked difference from what we were seeing in the letters, which was people who really thought that this was a savings account, 
that yeah. they could actually make interest rates that they weren't able to find in the traditional financial market and who were really relying on this money. I mean, some people were sending letters about how they couldn't pay medical bills. They couldn't, you know, they were risk, they were at risk of losing their homes because of this bankruptcy. And so, you know, I just felt really important to make sure that people understood that, you know, there's actually real people being harmed out here. It's not just the crypto bro moonshot folks who's like, oh, well, they lost their gambling money. I'd like to read one of the ones that you highlighted because I, I bookmarked it because I think it it really described the, the disconnect in what you're describing in terms of, you know, people think it's like dudes with laser eyes. But here's an example of the reality. This was on you posted this on the 21st of July. I'm a Celsius customer with a little more than $15,000 worth of deposits that are locked up in Celsius. $15,000 may not mean a lot to some people, but it is about 65% of my life savings. Losing all my savings will have irreparable consequences on the well-being of myself and my family. I'm ashamed, humiliated, and quite frankly, disgusted that I put all my trust into this company. I'll be spending years trying to make back the money I lost. That was one <laughs> of, of these kinds of letters. And how are you finding that people are responding to this work that you're doing? Because as you said, you sort of started as a countervailing wind, right? Everything was going up in the markets at that time. You know, like nobody really wanted to hear from somebody being like, I'm not sure if this is all such a good idea. I think even in, you know, a bear market, a lot of people don't really want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> um, you know, I think with crypto, there's just an overwhelming incentive to be really positive about crypto at all costs, because so much of crypto's value is based on the belief that the token or the NFT or whatever the asset might be will go up in price. And so anyone questioning it or criticizing it, you know, is is presenting a risk to the actual value of the asset. And so even, you know, when things are going pretty poorly overall in the market, you know, individuals really want to keep that hope alive, I think. But, you know, I think there has been more openness to hear the the critical perspectives as, you know, people have seen that things have gone poorly overall, as some skeptics have been predicting. You know, I think that it's really easy to brush off critics when you're seeing tokens double in price overnight and, you know, the lines are going up. But as we see these collapses, you know, of these different crypto projects that were all sort of dominoes uh, knocking each other over in this, you know, spring and summer of 2022, I think people have realized that there really are serious issues with the industry as a whole. And so the media and the general public have been a little more receptive to those uh, viewpoints. Coming up, you'll hear more from Molly White around what ordinary people need to understand about crypto. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
You've spoken in the past about the fact that you have experienced online harassment, you know, in kind of various iterations of in the life of a person, particularly a, a woman who has been very visible and very online for a long time. I can share because I have shared here before that, you know, I have on my team, we will have a reporter publish a story and then in their DMs or their emails or, you know, kind of like directly and aggressively, folks will be like, why are you everything from very mild? Oh, you must be a paid shill who is trying to, you know, FUD Bitcoin, FUD being a phrase used in, in crypto world to mean fair uncertainty and doubt um, or, you know, kind of to the extremes of threats and, you know, other types of things for, you know, what I would consider as an editor is to be like, a pretty straightforward story about a market movement <laughs> or 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 a company doing something is there anything in your experience of having navigated this world that you think leads to this heightening of both emotions and a, and a kind of like violent nihilism as it were in some cases yeah, I mean, I think it's related to what I alluded to before, which is the financial incentive to be positive, to, you know, promote the idea that the token prices or the market as a whole are going to go up. But I think there's also a strong ideological component to it as well, where people really see crypto as the solution to a lot of serious problems. And when someone is speaking against, you know, the potential of crypto, they see that as someone saying, you know, I don't want to solve those problems or, mm -hmm. you know, you are a bad person for mm -hmm. trying to solve those problems, which I think is really not the message that a lot of people are trying to get across. But it's become twisted, I think, in the eyes of a lot of people. But yeah, I think, you know, generally speaking, when you threaten someone's bottom line, you know, when, when they have a lot of investment into a, you know, a specific asset and you do something that might cause that asset price to change, even if it is fairly unbiased reporting or just, you know, just describing what is happening in the real world, mm -hmm. people will respond very, very aggressively to that. And I think, you know, the culture in crypto has really contributed to that, where people are somewhat encouraged to do that. And it becomes, you know, insular movement where that behavior is just completely normalized. Is there anything in addition to that financial incentive that you find either unusual or distinct about how some of this takes place? I think the level that it happens in crypto is unusual. I mm -hmm. mean, I've definitely experienced harassment because of my involvement with Wikipedia, my coverage of, you know, right-wing political movements in the U.S. And it's definitely, you know, pretty serious in that particular group as well. Mm -hmm. But with crypto, it's a very, it's very strange, I think, the degree to which it's normalized. And I don't know if it has to do with the amount of people who are really anonymous in crypto. And so they feel you know, protected in saying some really heinous things. But the level to which the toxicity has really emerged from crypto is pretty unusual. And I think that has been recognized sort of in the mainstream where people have this view of, you know, crypto bros who are, mm -hmm. you know, have the laser eyes. And it's sort of everyone, I think there's this sort of perception of crypto people as very intense and often aggressive and I guess I would say it's not unearned. Right. 
I want to go back to something, you know, a couple of months ago when you were invited to give a statement to the Financial Stability Oversight Council on regulating digital assets. You talked about the trade-offs of anonymity and pseudonymity. And one of the things that you said is it's actually really easy for people who think their transactions are private or that their identities are obscured to inadvertently out themselves because the the level of technical proficiency that you have to actually be secret the whole time is relatively high. Can you say a little bit more about why highlighting those kinds of things for what you called, you know, the quote unquote average user is important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think crypto has, you know, historically been something that's been used by people who are very technically proficient and who are capable of doing things like self-custodying and, you know, keeping track of all the different wallet addresses and, and secret keys and all these different things. But, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen these attempts to mainstream crypto and to make it something that, you know, everyone's got an app on their phone and they're trading crypto day to day and everyone should be putting money into it to some extent. I don't think that it is, you know, achievable for average people to be using crypto in the way that people say that you should be. So, you know, someone might be able to download an app and and trade some crypto, but you know, not your keys, not your coins, you know, you're supposed to be keeping it in a wallet yourself, maybe a hardware wallet, something like that. And when you start to actually look into what it takes for someone to do that, it's not something that, you know, your average person who's not a software person, they're not online all the time, can really do. And so I think it's alarming that people are pushing the idea that crypto is something that you know, should become the backbone of a financial system that is widely used in society when that's not achievable at the current moment. And there are enormous hurdles to it becoming achievable. Mm -hmm. Well, first I'll say I find it interesting how many of the folks who have spent so much time in, in and around software are some of the biggest skeptics of this message that like anyone can do it. It's totally fine. Just like slap a user interface on it and it's great. But if you were asked the question, someone who is not the most tech savvy, but, you know, like reasonably aware of what's going on, at a minimum understands two-factor authentication, and they insist, absolutely insist, that they want to get involved in crypto, and you could give them one piece of caution or advice, what would that be? I mean, it's pretty cliche, but don't invest more than you can afford to lose. There is no predicting what's going to happen in the crypto markets. And you should really assume that anything you put in could be worth zero tomorrow. And so, you know, it's really tempting, especially when the line is going up and people are, you know, advertising all these returns that they're making to put a lot of money into it on the hopes that, you know, you might be one of those people who triples their money, but... You know, I've seen so many times that it goes in the other direction, too. And, you know, people overexpose themselves. Well, I'll share just as a closing remark, a quote that you highlighted on your blog from, you know, Michael Saylor, who very famously said, you know, mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin, <laughs> which is the, the exact opposite of the kind of prudence and caution that you are recommending. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure and, you know, hope to have you back again. Thanks for having me. You can find her work, of course, on Twitter. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, when crypto prices were high, you know, 
around this time last year, a certain class of crypto aficionados took full advantage of the digital nomad lifestyle. They showed up in places like Portugal and Miami and San Juan, leaving behind their lives in New York and London. How's that going now, you ask? Well, let's just say there's less sun, sea, and sand in their lives these days. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Sharon Barrero. Associate producer is Ty Butler. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.